this week on episode 23 of Insecurity, we get a general overview of small, mid, and large-scale product and project development. Send us an email to feedback at in-security.org. Follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. Please visit our website at in-security.org. Read show notes, leave comments, and much, much more. My name is Matt. And my name is Max. Hey, what's going on? Oh, man, not a lot, but um, I don't know. I, I'm in a really good mood. Did you enjoy any of the April's Fool's Day's funness? I did. I saw a variety of web jokes. I think that's why I'm in such a good mood. Monday, I was in a crap mood. All the web jocularity? Yeah, there's a lot of people going out there, going on above and beyond to make hilarious things. There was uh, a lot of good stuff out on ThinkGeek. Um, WestJet said that they were changing all of their air flight times to metric, which is a really easy system because you just multiply the hours by 60 and then divide by 1.44 as you add the hours and the minutes together. It's funny. Saw some hilarious ones. There's uh, some wearable making folks that are making uh, a fitness tracker that uh counts your twerking and other assorted fun stuffs. So I saw a lot of stuff on the webs that I thought was hilarious. One of my favorites was Swift Key, which is an application for Android that replaces the keyboard and gives you the ability to slide your finger over the keyboard and will then predict words from it. Right. So they're making a, uh, I think they called it something like Swift Key Hard, something to that effect, in which you simply do the same thing, but over your um, physical keyboard on your computer. <laughs> and it's nice. a real product. It's uh, it's available on their website. You can try it out. That's cool. And I, I heard something on the CBC, which I haven't confirmed is a joke yet, but I was laughing, assuming that it was because it was uh, somebody had, it was the April 1st episode when they were talking about the Toronto CBC morning podcast and, um, one of them was around the dog parks that are there. It's unfair and they need to share it with cats. So the cats have the opportunity between like 530 and 730 at night to have a chance to go to the dog park and like dogs aren't allowed then. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Kind of like adult swim as a kid, the actual adult swim at the pool where all the kids had to get out so that the adults could bob around for a little bit. Yep. Now I'm an adult. (sighs) Do you have any feedback? Any follow up? Yes. Yes. I have feedback. It's a plus 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 would recommend thumbs up. Would buy again. Yep. Yeah. So what did you, what would you, what would you like to, to talk about this week? You're the, you're the talent. So the concept of being a security guy is that you're a generalist. Really, you get a lot of the way that the enterprise works together. Uh, and so I was thinking I would talk generally about the the different roles within IT in an enterprise. Maybe something that you don't know, maybe something that you do. But as we're level setting, this is going to be a kind of basic episode talking about those different types of roles, different types of tools that you come into play with and uh, how these things work together in synergy. Is this a talk about IT specifically or is this a talk more about 
security IT IT from a security standpoint? No, th- this is generally how IT work in an enterprise type situation. I don't know what the tilting teeter totter point is where it gets to this size and you need these types of roles, but uh, definitely most large organizations are like this. Fair enough. All right. So, so let's take a perspective. We just got to choose one. So let's say a developer, right? A developer in an enterprise is not a lone body. I mean, you have a bunch of developers, but they work together on projects. They, they work as a team and you'll have people developing actual different components that all fit together within source code, right? That gets compiled down to, to a product that gets delivered out there. Either if you're developing for yourself or developing a, a tool set that you're delivering to somebody, right? No matter what. And the developers all have to work away at their component and at some point have a, a, a product to hand over to testers. And the developers all work uniquely on their own thing and test it themselves to make sure that it works. But as it gets compiled together into a, a larger product, they they use these tools like code repositories that will track the changes to the component that they've developed. And then whenever anybody says, okay, I want to, I want to test this as a package together, it will compile all of the different modules together using the, the most current version that it has and spit out uh, an application at the other end. Clear? Yes. Okay. So it's very important at any point in time for these developers using this tool to be able to roll back to a previous version, to track the changes between the version. It helps with the documentation that gets created along with the code. Uh, it, it helps people flag experimental components versus you know core production components uh, and established stuff that won't change. And then it, it all gets fed out to some sort of quality assurance team, some sort of testing team that will take the code and run it through uh, their test conditions. So I, I guess we need to talk about the project management. So once there's uh, an identified path, something that needs to be accomplished, uh, some sort of goal that's created, typically you'll have a project manager who manages the resources, make sure that people are delivering things on time, that um, critical path elements are taken into consideration and things can work like clockwork. They're basically the the gear checkers on the clock, making sure that everything's ticking in synchronization to be able to deliver the product at the end date. And if there's any product problems coming up, they're the people that escalate to the stakeholders that say, okay, we've run into this snag and this snag. I've got to delay this group uh, or free up these testers to go and test something else while we're still delivering this piece that we've run into some technical snag or whatnot. Uh, and they, they do a whole bunch more than that as well. But for that perspective, uh, that's where they, that's where we are, where we are in the conversation right now. Uh, so yeah, so the testers would get the code and, and they'd have, they'd have test cases that they'd have to make sure the developers uh, were trying to develop the software to 
solve actually meets their objective. And anything that doesn't actually meet the objective or something that has a a bug within it gets tracked in uh, an issue tracking software. Right. So that they can say, okay, we've run through the first test of this. This worked. This didn't work. This didn't work. This didn't work. Uh, these things need to get fixed. Uh, we've also done perhaps some destructive tests. This is where the security angle comes in. We've tried to put in invalid input and lo and behold, the application barfed, right? So that gets, gets tracked as a bug within the issue tracking software. So the developers read the issues, they go and they start fixing the bugs right away. Um, or if they're minor bugs, then management decision might be that, okay, well, we'll accept this for now and fix it in the next revision. Right. We talked early on about this type of decision making that gets done. But if if there is a real problem, then the developers track it and then the uh, sorry, the the testers track it and the developers have to go back and fix it at some point. At some point in time, everything's good to go. We've got a gold image for this piece of software to go out. So. The developers say, okay, this is the final version within their code repository. The QA guys say, okay, these are the issues that we're living with for right now. We'll keep, we'll come back to this later when we do the next revision of the software. These are the ones that were all solved. This is how much effort was involved in all of that. And it goes on to the, the next stage, which is let's get this out there in people's hands for production. So if you're developing these things for your own organization, you'll have someone act as the bouncer to make sure that things only go through once everybody's satisfied with it. Right. So you'll have this change management group who are looking after it, making sure that developers aren't doing a quick fix, which might break something else that hasn't been fully tested, that uh, the operational people are satisfied with it, the engineering folks have the ability to deal with it. They have the resources the night of in case something goes wrong, horribly, horribly wrong. Right. So you have these different bodies that are, that are involved. Cool. Yep. Absolutely. So if everything's good, everybody agrees that the change is, is valid and can go in. Uh, then, then it goes on to the next stage where the, you have the, sometimes it's the operations people. Uh, sometimes it's application support individuals that will, take that finalized gold image package and deploy it onto the production systems and do that final configuration for it to be production. If anything goes wrong uh, with that deployment, they might go back to the developer themselves and say, you know, maybe the documentation was missing for, for deploying this. Uh, If there's any service interruption if the servers that it's deployed onto somehow start acting funny, utilizations going through the charts, there's like CPUs are spinning out of control, memory leaks are happening, um, all of these issues are happening, then hopefully within a mature change management system, they'll also have a backout method for the application that's being deployed. So this is the you know parachute. We've got to revert back to the previous version. So they can undo all of the changes that happened um, all those configuration settings have to go back to what they were beforehand. Uh, a graceful 
removal, the shutting down of services, as these are more complex systems uh, in an enterprise, you might have several components existing simultaneously. So for instance, you'll have like a database farm that holds multiple databases for different applications. And if one's not working, um, if the change actually changes the database structure or the schema to it, you might have to undo that. So there might have to be some development effort to make sure that any database uh, schema changes get undone as well in the same graceful way. Right. And you can't simply take like a backup of the database and restore back to that backup because the other systems are still live and still actually uh, handling other people's data and, and, you know, in a financial world, which I live in, you know, you can't just revert back those financial transactions because somebody saw the confirmation that their financial transaction was complete. And then you have the engineering groups, which look after the actual, you know, you have like the windows admins. Those are qualified under like the engineering group, the Unix admins, the network admins, the database admins, uh, those people that get escalated to if something's really, really wrong, like if things go terribly out of control, those are the people that you call, you wake up, you page them and they uh, page. I can't believe people still use pagers, but they do. Uh, you wake them up and, and get them to come in and fix the whole environment for you. So project managers tracking all of this, making sure that the documentation's there, that the code changes are documented that the right parties are involved, all of the resource allocation, that the right servers are ordered. Um, so that then there's in a large enterprise that cares about such things, you'll have an architecture group that gets involved early on and says, okay, this is how the systems have to interact to be able to scale within our huge environment of all of these other applications. So if one application is got a reliance or a dependency on another application, the architect will tell them, okay, this is the standardized way in which you can gain access to the information that you rely on to make your decision through your application. So the project manager organizes all of this, makes sure that everybody delivers on what's required for the stakeholder, organizes all of the bodies, makes sure that everybody's available at the right times, and then reports back you know, success and delivery of the project. And then everybody has a big party and it's wonderful. Oh, and now I remember what I was talking about. Uh, large organizations will have like architects that make sure that systems communicating in between each other uh, have the right interface to do that. They work on a series of patterns, which is uh, basically organizationally created standardized approaches to doing things. So if, for instance, you need to transfer files from one application to another, you might use some sort of common file transfer system where things first have to get transferred to some sort of hub and then communicated down across to another system. And they make sure that people don't go out and develop their own method of doing things because at the end of the day, the more unique system interactions that you have the more complexity you bring to the environment, the more support staff that you need, the more documentation, and the longer that it takes to fix a problem. So that's the objective of the, the architect is really take that mile high view 
and see that people are interacting in a way that doesn't bring operational risk or potentially security risk to the bank. And then you'll have the security individuals as well that will, um, and there's different categories of security people, but you have people that will ensure that the standardized approach is done for the development, uh, that application authentication happens in a certain way. Um, they'll, they'll consult with people and they'll do assessments on the actual application itself to make sure that when it goes live, it doesn't have all of these gaps within it and work with the, the folks to develop, uh, work with the testers to make sure that they have test criteria that are security related, work with the developers to make sure that they don't get off on the wrong foot to begin with, work with the operational folks and make sure that rules aren't broken. And then where I'm going next with this is, all of we see the framework now right we see all of the different parties that are involved in delivering a piece of software in an enterprise scale and there are constraints that we want to have in place so you don't want a developer to be able to bypass the change management system right if there's a if there's a bug in a software that doesn't require immediate intervention, then you don't want a developer to have access to production to be able to make those changes there, right? If your organization is large enough and formalized enough, you probably don't want the developer to be able to go into the test environment and pull the carpet underneath the testers and while they're in the middle of a test too, right? You want some sort of control over these environments. The developer probably needs access to be able to see the you know, problems within the test environment. So you might want to give them read access to, to the test environment, but you probably don't want to give them read access to the production environment. You probably have some sort of application support group or operational group that can actually get the developer the logs should they need it. Because or at least within our organization, there's a lot of confidential information going around. And you want to limit who has access to that confidential information. So you you develop these techniques to say... Potentially without confidential information being a big part of it, is there any other discernible reason why you wouldn't want the developers to be able to find out if there are catastrophic failures or anything in the production environment why you wouldn't want them to have, well, maybe not even catastrophic, just if there were issues or bugs or errors being reported in a production environment, aside from the possibility of having confidential information, is there any reason that you can think of offhand that would make it so that you didn't want them to have access? So there's a discussion around separation of duties and how you establish that. Typically, the line is that developers don't have access to production. Um, barring the confidential information residing there from an information security perspective, I don't see um, any catastrophic result with the developer having access to it. Okay. I just wanted to know if you had any additional like, reasons that this could be terrible. No, Just, it really comes down to separation of duties. You want the developers to continue developing as the support people do their support work. Right. 
So you don't want somebody stepping on somebody else's toes because that's a waste of resources as well as, you know, potentially conflict that can happen politically. So you'll want developers to have access to be able to publish code, but you want to make sure that somebody can't sneak a change in there as well. So you'll want to be able to use a system that does a, a good integrity check that um, developers who have privileged access to stuff when they commit it, perhaps it creates a cryptographic hash of the code submitted or some sort of very robust integrity check so that they can't slip something in the back end and have like a back door appear suddenly. You also don't want one developer being able to torpedo another developer's uh, code if they have no business. Like if you have somebody who's specialized in this transfer mechanism, you don't want somebody uh, who's a developer for a, a UI, a user interface, to be able to manipulate that person's code. Probably not. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe you're a smaller shop and, you know, one head wears many hats or whatnot. And this is where you start developing the security roles. So a QA person, you probably want the QA person to be able to grab the code from the that gold standard the developer put out rather than have the developer deploy that code to the test environment for the reason that I had mentioned earlier. But you'll also want the QA person to be able to green light that code and said, yes, we've tested this. We've gone through our meetings. Everybody's okay with this current version to go forward. So that as the developers are there working on fixing those bugs from the previous version, that's not the latest and greatest tested code. And that can't just go out uh, for, for the mass populace. And then the ops guys would go back to that code and say, okay, this is the greenlit code. I'm pulling it out. It's this is directly from what the developers had chosen as being good to go. I'm going to deploy this to production. And then all of these systems work together. Hopefully the help desk guys can submit tickets back to the developers if a user group is having issues as well. So I guess that's really the thing I wanted to tackle this time. If you don't have any questions, I don't know. Well, I think the best answer that you gave to the the question that I asked was the main reason being if you are large scale, then you're not going to want too many people overstepping their bounds with their abilities or not necessarily too many people overstepping their bounds or what their specific goals are supposed to be. You don't want devs to necessarily be stepping on or trying to do the jobs of other people you want them developing. So where then from a security standpoint, where would you find a security professional in all of this? Or is there individual security professionals from each station so that you'll have somebody in charge of security for the development team, someone in charge of security for QA? I'm not sure if I've covered this before, but security is bigger than any one person can be accountable for, right? You, you have a security team. Their responsibility is to arm people with the knowledge of how to not cause a security incident or deal with those security incidents once they do occur. 
really you need everybody to have security as part of their responsibility. So the developer has to be armed with the proper techniques to not create security problems in the first place. The testing team need to be aware that there are uh, common vulnerabilities and test for those and make sure that those problems aren't introduced along with the business test cases that they are required to check. They should have some sort of destructing destructive test capability where they validate that, uh, you know, these problems aren't being introduced. Um, and everybody kind of works as this, this shim, um, not, not a shim. Everybody works together to shore up each other, right. And make sure that, you know, the ops guys are there to enforce the access rights that are required that makes sense from, you know, perhaps an application fetching from a database. Uh, and then you'll have a security responsibility, which is to assess the application and see that from a business logic perspective and an integration perspective, we're not using technologies or techniques that create risk for an organization. So for instance, we want to make sure that we're not putting out uh, a client piece of software that relies on FTP that sends credentials and confidential information in the clear, right? We want to make sure that it's actually using these techniques that have a secure socket connection that we're not just creating a random API that, uh, that creates a raw socket, a raw TCP IP socket for sending information between one system and another, that access control is thought out properly, that you can have separation of duties between the people who are um, who are creating accounts for the individuals that need access and the users of the application itself. And then you'll have the security operation guys making sure that people aren't, you know, brute forcing accounts and, and trying everybody's passwords to, to log in or, you know, launching some sort of a denial of service attack. You want those type of security operations guys looking at that as well. Okay. I mean, do you have, you don't have any experience with a large scale organization in the way that these structures are set up? Anything come as a surprise to you? Um, I've not worked like, cause all of, almost all of this was dealing with the development of a product. So I've not worked in a large scale development team or worked in somewhere where I've had any information or input or insight as to the workings of a large scale development team in making products or projects. A university in the IT department, basically all of our stuff was um, more or less maintaining and implementing turnkey solutions. So off the shelf kind of software pretty much like all the teachers had access to Moodle. I don't know if you're at all familiar with that. It's basically a way to have uh, online courses, classes and evaluations with quizzes and uh, notes and whatnot that can be uploaded. Um, apparently relatively widely used because I've run into it in multiple places other than just the university. Right. Then there were potentially a couple of other 
uh, like all of the general email clients and stuff that we had at the time were all just big implementations of widely known and generally publicly available stuff. Okay, but I bet you behind the scenes, you'll have people with test systems deploy the the application there first, make sure that everything's working right before the general populace has access to it. Oh, uh, ideally, yeah, there really should have been. <laughs> no, there were there were in fact um people behind the scenes who were testing stuff out and then just the scope of it was never really I don't know, never really right. Never properly defined. Um never properly defined. Also it was presumably an educational institution is significantly different from a banking institution as far as the amount of money that they are willing to throw at making the product proper, adequate, scalable. The student portal that we had for registration would reliably and predictably go down as the registration uh, cutoff times and start dates were reached. It was like clockwork. Hmm. Um, mostly because the scope of it was not great enough to handle the vast quantity of people trying to access it at those times. But it was a toss up because like, I don't, I don't know if you remember Sejep registration at John Abbott where they had the telephone registration yeah, I sure do. And you had telephone registration with what I can only assume was three phone lines. <laughs> sure felt like that. In reality, Always the vast busy. number of phone lines and the vast infrastructure that they had in place to, to handle this would, again, reliably and predictably fail during what is inevitably going to be the heaviest load times. Right. There are actually testing tools. So there's a bunch of different testing environments. I suppose I should talk about those briefly. So you have the developers who are developing stuff. Or if you don't have a development team, if you're just implementing something that you've bought off the shelf of some store somewhere, um, you go and you implement it into perhaps a proof of concept environment where you you learn about the product there. Uh, and you see how the interactions occur, perhaps from the engineering side to be able to say, OK, this is going to meet the needs. And I guess this all really comes back to the fact that you don't implement IT for IT's sake, right? IT never just does something for its own sake if it's not fixing a problem that IT introduced in the first place. You have a business objective that you're trying to meet. so. Oftentimes in, in larger organizations, you'll see IT organizations kind of get a life of their own and, and start mandating that stuff happens in certain ways and have IT projects for IT's sake. And that needs to that needs to have a curb put into it. Just. That needs to be curbed. That regularly runs under either 
somebody who is just too ambitious, somebody who really, really wants new toys or I don't know, um, a company that's just trying to grow to a level that it's not at currently by trying to implement what the big boys have. I suppose, but it, you really need to have that business need to get there to have that return on investment. Right. Uh, the other test environments before I get off topic, <laughs> hang on. It's like people, uh, going out and buying super high end recording equipment. <laughs> but at least you sound good to your own robot ears. Before I get too far off topic, the, the testing environments that you'll have, uh, You'll have, so the proof of concept environment that I just discussed, you'll have uh, a user acceptance test environment, which is more along the lines of, uh, you know, does it meet the business objectives that we're trying to succeed with? Does the UI look right? All that type of stuff. You'll also have a systems integration test where you have a bunch of the current state systems set up and make sure that the actual technical integration points between the systems works correctly. In the system integration test, that's where you would throw a whole bunch of load at a system. So there's these load generating type applications and and infrastructure, which will say, okay, you're expecting maybe a peak volume of a hundred thousand people trying to register at xyz university at any point in time right what if there was two hundred thousand people trying to register right what does that load look like the common workflow for somebody to actually register through the course where system looks like this so it'll it'll have these simulations that go through and it'll put up this tremendous amount of load uh, and then you'll get to see what your system looks at through peak and like overmaxed type load. Do you have any idea what kind of power or devices or machine you need to have behind a testing environment like that? Is that something that is so generally affordable that an IT department run on a shoestring type budget can potentially just, you know, whip up a 486 in the back room and no, no, these like are, this super these are pricey. Yeah, these, these are high end like load testing machines, right? So it's, uh, it's something that you invest in once and reuse across a, a fleet of applications and it's flexible in the ability to do that. Uh, but they're not cheap. It, it, so that's a really good point though. As far as the shoestring type budget organizations, like a small business or whatnot, like Carrie's worked at these graphic design studios where, you know, they had a server and a NAS file share, network attached storage file share, and uh, like a fleet of 12 Macs and uh, another dozen PCs, right? And, and they had outsourced all of IT to a single individual, right? And this wasn't even his full-time gig. This is like... Hey, he's on call. Somebody's PC's not booting. Get him over here. Somebody's infected with a virus or whatnot. So you'll have these small shops with uh, one person wearing many hats that oftentimes, 
you know, doesn't understand what the business objective is. He's only in to solve a problem. And in that respect, often causes more problems than not. I got a laptop from uh, from this guy for laptops that they were, you know, no longer needing. And uh, I loaded up the laptop and, and looked through it and it had like other user accounts on there and their confidential information. So I told Carrie to tell her boss that this guy's like a joke, not taking care of their information properly. He had re- he had reinstalled Windows on top of itself, which doesn't do anything to clean up the the actual user accounts and information stored on the hard drive. So, yeah, I mean, if you can't afford a lot, you don't get a lot. Um, and you do get what you pay for. There's potentially situations where mid to small to mid business would not invest in these kind of things. Maybe through little more than just not even knowing about it. Yeah, I think there's a maturity component to it as well, right? You'll start off as a small business where you got a buddy and he knows the computers and he comes in and he sets up your local network using you know, consumer grade stuff. And then your business grows and it grows and you need to move office space. And next thing you know, you know, oh, this Linksys router keeps dropping and I need to reboot it every day. And, you know, it's really interrupting people's ability to do stuff. Now I can no longer have consistent voice over IP conversations because the IP is dropping on me. Right. And it's not it's not allowing it's really looking bad and making me look like a Mickey Mouse shop. So next thing you know, you invest in some greater equipment. Then along comes a next a next site. You've expanded. You've uh, got a franchise somewhere else or whatnot, right? Now these systems need to interact together. And so just like how the computing industry has grown and expanded and become more mature, your business has to reflect that too. So now you start having to perhaps have a dedicated IT guy who, who just knows everything. Right. And then you say, well, my windows boxes, uh, need a dedicated person to manage the organizations for all their email and, uh, active directory user accounts and all that stuff. So it, it's just this ever expanding, growing. And as you grow, you mature. And as you mature, you find these problems and, and, Find the right fit for the organization. You create a wacky little website that you figure uh, has this functionality that is going to use very small amounts of data because you only allow 140 characters to be written at a time. And then all of a sudden, Ashton Kutcher joins it, and now you have to give the fail whale to everybody. Right. But more, more along the lines behind the scenes, you have these engineers going, wow. Who in their right mind designed this in this way? These systems use the most inefficient protocol. There's so much overhead on this. It's now, you know, causing all all these problems. What we need to do is we need to first split the load and cluster access to this across multiple devices. And then we can start looking at what are more efficient protocols and start implementing those in test environments because we're so popular. We can't stand the downtime of of, you know, actually the time that it takes to deploy this code across all these systems. So we'll start building up this synchronous environment 
and then cut over to it, perhaps. And everybody's that's called the Big Bang approach. Right. And uh, and we'll worry about a second of outage versus, you know, an hour to deploy the stuff and potentially back it out. So, I mean, there's so much to talk about on this topic. Uh, This was just a little teaser and a taste for those people who aren't familiar with enterprise type organizations. I'm already taking the scope of the big organization uh, because that's, you know, where I live and work in. And uh, and there's definitely ways to do it right. And there's definitely ways to do it wrong. And there's growing pains along the way. I just kind of smalled it up a little bit just to yep. try no, and it's, get perspective here. Yeah. And it's and it's great because I do need to be reined in because I, you know, I don't live in that world anymore. The small shops and and I just see people doing the wrong stuff. And it's totally understandable for the size of the business at the time. There is a really good book on this topic as far as you know kind of the things that could go wrong if you give somebody access to do stuff and if you don't have the proper processes in place in between these two why you would want the separation of duties and it's a book called the phoenix project and i i highly recommend it it's uh if you don't have this type of enterprise view of stuff you should go out and get it it's pretty cheap to get an ebook on that We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Sure, why not? Disclaimer. When I worked for a major university, it was also several years ago. So I have no idea what uh, what kind of changes they've made since then. I think that in the end, we, we pulled it together. We sorted it out. I think that we got a great show out of this one. What do you think? Good. I hope so. I, uh, I hope that people actually appreciate this if this is not the world that they live in. And if it is the world that you live in, well, we've got it covered now. So big deal. Also, if it is the world that you live in, feel free to write in uh, hilarious gripes that you have because I love reading those. Or funny anecdotes. You can send your gripes to uh, feedback at in-security.org or or any sort of input that you have as well. Uh, If you've got a funny anecdote or whatnot to share with us, we don't have to read it on the air, but we love funny anecdotes. It's true. We do. We're very easily entertained. Absolutely. And with that, I bid you a good week, my buddy. All right, you have yourself a good week, too.